we're continuing our series in the epistle of Paul to Titus. And our sermon text, once again, as it was last week, will be verses 3 through 5 of Titus 2. But in order to prepare us for the reading of our sermon text, will you first turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 for a little incident from the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 7, verses 36 to 48. Let us hear the word of God. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, At his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know. Who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner? And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And now let us turn to the epistle to Titus, chapter 2. Verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would bless us 
in our understanding of this passage. Open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to embrace the teaching of your spirit inscripturated in the Bible. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were together, I had not nearly enough time to do expository justice to this doctrine of women in the church. I hope to correct that today because easily half the church directly benefits from a clear understanding and application of the pattern of godly femininity. And the other half has the sacred duty to support them in it. So it's a passage that applies directly or indirectly to all of us who want to experience godly living in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for all of us. The world outside might not know what a woman is, but by the grace of God, we do. Last time, we considered more of the relational dynamics at work, both those between sound doctrine and godly behavior in general, and those dynamics that exist between older and younger women in particular. It was more a sermon on the importance of relationships last week. But we didn't examine the specific characteristics of godly femininity or the specifically feminine godliness. However you want to look at it, godly femininity or a specifically feminine godliness. Today we'll take a closer look at those qualities that Paul lists in verses 3 to 5. And as we do, I want to emphasize four things about them as a group or as a composite picture of feminine godliness. Each one of these, after all, is just a brush stroke of the portrait. But first we appreciate the portrait. So first, these qualities of verses 3 through 5, these qualities taken together are eminently lovable qualities. And they're lovable not just to Paul, not just to men, but to God. That's why they're here. Through some twistedness of human nature, Paul's teaching on women gets a bad rap these days. Whether he's writing to Titus or whether he's writing to Timothy or whether he's writing to uh, anyone, the Corinthians, anyone else. His teaching gets a bad rap. And why does Paul get a bad rap on his doctrine of women? Well, because we're trying to measure the Bible by contemporary culture rather than the other way around. And cultural standards are a very slippery, slithery thing. Our own Western culture's dynamic, ever-changing force, and yet, at the same time, it pretends to be the authoritative measuring rod, not only of things ethical, but even of things lasting and eternal. But it can't be done. can't be done. Because human culture uses a sliding scale. What's culturally good today, considered good, might not be good tomorrow. And women risk wearing themselves out trying to meet the current expectations of others. What's a woman supposed to be like? How is she supposed to look? 
What's she supposed to wear? How's she supposed to act? How's she supposed to think? Culture is ever shifting and reversing itself on those points. But the word of our God stands forever. Forever. Culture and its ever-changing trends represent tyranny over the conscience. The word of God offers us freedom. Our Heavenly Father loves to see these qualities of verses 3 through 5 grow and blossom in the lives of his daughters. He always has, he always will, because they reflect his own holy and changeless character. Paul's only the apostle. Paul is only the faithful messenger. He's not the original author of this doctrine. It's not Paul's doctrine. So it's God, not Paul, who gets the glory when these traits actually take root in the redeemed woman's soul and in the church. And it's God, not Paul, whom we argue against when we object to them. Because it's first and foremost God who loves them. The second important feature of this lovely composite picture is that it's learnable. It's learnable, and thanks be to God that it is, because little girls aren't born this way. Are they? Sugar and spice and everything nice. Unless by the grace of God, the Spirit of God works within them. And they learn their way out of this natural disposition by the training of older, wiser, redeemed women. What are you young ladies going to do as you find your way through life and its relationships? Unchanged from your natural lost condition. What are you going to do? What's going to be your modus operandi in the home, in the church, in the workplace? I'll tell you what I've seen along life's way, and you decide whether it describes your situation. There are women, needy, insecure women, apart from the grace of Christ, who develop their natural, outward, feminine charms only to leverage those charms against the affection of the men they target. Sometimes it's for love, but isn't it very often for other things? And this starts early in life, doesn't it? She bats her little eyes and says, Daddy, I want a pony. And then 20 years later, honey, I want something else that's expensive and impractical and probably is going to need to be insured. Pretty please. The batting eyes and the sweet smiles fall so pleasantly on the vulnerable ears of the men who love these grown-up girls. Not women, not mature women. They're grown-up girls. Who's going to say no to the girl he loves? Haven't you seen it? The natural selfishness of the fallen woman and her readiness to leverage God's good gifts of femininity to indulge it. Well, in Christ, I'm confident of much better things for each of you. So thanks be to God, the exploitive habits 
of our fallen nature by grace can be put off and these feminine virtues can be learned. Thirdly, they're livable. They're livable. This isn't a philosophy to debate, but preeminently, it is a life to be lived. It's a daily practical matter worked out in a woman's hands as much as in her head and heart. It takes practice, and through practice, you get better at it. This list of feminine traits that God loves and that you can learn and that once learned outwardly is lived once learned inwardly is lived outwardly is finally laudable. Laudable. That is, it's praiseworthy. This is a life that provides a beautiful, indisputable testimony to the transforming power of the Word of God in a woman's life. Notice the end of verse 5. What's the outcome of this lifestyle gratefully lived for the pleasure and glory of God? Well, it has many fine consequences for this and coming generations. But the one to which Paul especially draws our attention, and the one certainly dearest to the Christian's heart, is the honoring of God's word. The honoring of God's word. Now, it's only natural for a Christian woman, whether young or old, who learns to live this way, it's only natural for her to be somewhat fearful of calling attention to herself. Because you'll stand out among women. They'll look at you, they'll look at your modesty, your charity, your purity, and they're going to say, what planet is she from? When's she going to join the rest of us here in the 21st century? There's no getting around it, really. That, that's what she's apt to face in some of her social circles, that kind of resistance. And the conundrum is that if she's a Christian woman, that's about the last thing she wants to do, to stand out and draw attention to herself. So she feels this immense pressure to conform to the far less extraordinary pattern of other women around her. She feels the pressure to fit in. to go along, to get along. She finds her everyday social standards there among the habits of other women rather than the word of God which gets lip service but often not much more. It is a a genuine struggle to aim high. And brothers, please, let me here add a plea to strengthen your sister's hands in this work. When you notice, when you appreciate the little stands that she takes in the course of a day for squashing gossip or for personal modesty, or for safeguarding her marriage, her home, or for safeguarding the gospel, when you see this and you appreciate it, tell her so. Support her in it so she will know she's not alone in this. The fight for godly femininity isn't her fight. It's ours together as the church. So that's important, an important challenge I give to you men. But having said that, ladies, obviously the burden of obedience to this pattern at the end of the day falls mostly to you. 
to help solve the felt problem of being actually different. I invite you to recall that sinful woman of Luke 7, 36 and following, who came to Simon the Pharisee's house, anointing Jesus' feet with the alabaster vial of perfume. And so you can see her there, weeping for her sin, anointing Jesus' feet with the alabaster vial of perfume. You can see her expressing her devotion to her Savior in the only way she knows how, kissing the feet of Jesus unceasingly throughout the meal and behaving in every way very different from other women. Don't you suppose her outpouring of devotion called attention to herself? There, in the house of a Pharisee, of course. It did. It did. Is calling attention to herself the goal? You can be sure that that was the very last thing on her mind, the last thing she wanted, because she's a sinner. She knows she's a sinner. She feels it keenly. It's a dagger in her soul. But in her love, all she could see was her Savior. If I place myself at the feet of Jesus, how strangely irrelevant become the frowns and finger-pointing of everyone else in the world. Because true love scorns convention. True love scorns convention. Beloved sisters in the Lord, let me suggest to you that as you live out your Christian experience of full pardon in this post-Christian world, you are living in a Pharisee's house. You're living in a house where the only damnable offense is to love much. You'll call attention to yourself, like it or not, you will. So count the cost of your discipleship to Jesus Christ. And when the fingers start pointing your way, as they will, because you've learned to live differently, be ready to give an answer for the hope and for the love that's within you. You no longer belong to the world. You no longer are under its control. From the inside out, you've become God's own special treasure and handiwork. Now we know, of course, that sound doctrine with godliness doesn't level all the natural distinctions among us in the church. Men don't become womenly. Women don't become manly. We don't all just move toward the center or the lowest common denominator, even if there is such a thing. Rather, the Holy Spirit's way is to cleanse us of our sin and renew us according to the image of Christ. Through faith in him, then, Each of us becomes everything we should have been all along. Men, by faith in Christ, are able to become real men, whole men, consecrated men. Women become real women, whole and consecrated to Christ. Inwardly in our hearts and outwardly in our relationships, we finally become what John Stott many years ago called God's new society. God's new humanity, the glorious body of Christ.
So what does the finished product of womanhood in the hands of God look like? First of all, according to what we have here, she's reverent in her behavior. The Holy Spirit has transformed her and her way of life from the common into one that's literally fitting for a temple. She is now fit for a temple. That's the content of the Greek word that Paul uses. Now, you weren't born that way, of course. The culture around you certainly hasn't raised you that way. The culture around you raises you to be fitting for the shopping mall. It tries to manipulate you as though you're just another cog in the great wheel of the American economy. It raises you girls ever since the dawning of universal suffrage to be fitting for the city hall. Our public schools aim not to glorify God, but to churn out more secular voters who can read the ballot. It raises you to be fitting for the soccer bleachers or the soccer field or the kitchen or the, um, the classroom. The world out there has expectations of you in those places. And success in any of them is all well and good. Thank God for the achievements of women in the home and community. But his aim for you, God's aim for you, is higher than anything that mere civic life offers. Each one of you in Christ is a living stone carved and fashioned to fit a needed place of strength and beauty in the temple of Christ, which is the church. And loveliness on the outside may be a wonderful thing, but since when have braided hair and gold jewelry built the church? Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Your behavior befits the beauty, the strength, the purposes of God's house. And here's a feminine virtue, second in Paul's list. It's right in front of you to read in English, but see if you can make out the sense of it as I read the Greek word. Paul says women are not to be diabolus. Diabolus. Christian women, do you want to please God? Then don't be diabolical. Don't be devils. Now why do you suppose Paul would put this here as he describes the transformation that sound doctrine brings about in the lives of women? Clearly because there are female devils surreptitiously at work within the visible church to bring it down as though each of them was some kind of termite. Women who do the devil's work, they slander, they gossip, they snipe, they accuse, they insinuate. And maybe they're right or maybe they're wrong. It's all the same to the devil and it's all the same to them. As long as there's some new juicy morsel to chew on, some tender soul upon whom to pray. They're content for the moment until they can sniff out or manufacture some new scandal. Now, 
Now, my own ex- sad experience is that men are at least women's equal in slander and libel and all the other means of robbing people of their good names. Why does Paul here single out women to be especially on guard against the sins of the tongue? I don't know. And I'm not ready to speculate. But I'll tell you this, what's good for the goose is good also for the gander. And in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul's describing difficult days ahead, he says men, that is anthropoi, humans of all kinds, men and women, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, diaboloi, devils. The work of devils or slanderers in the church runs, of course, 180 degrees counter the work and the will of Christ their understanding even of the outward facts they spread is at best imperfect. Christ Jesus, on the other hand, judges inerrantly even the motives of the heart. Devils take their imperfect understanding and then make the loudest noise they can with it. Christ Jesus takes his perfect knowledge of our sins and covers it. He makes it invisible even to God the Father. He dispenses with it the guilt of your sin. He dispenses with it by his own blood. Devils take some little breach of convention, some indiscretion, real or imagined, And they tear into it for the sheer pleasure of taking someone apart to settle some little grievance. Never mind due process. Never mind all the other demands of Christian love. But love, true love that lives beneath the cross, it covers and will always cover a multitude of sins. Women fit for the temple are neither devils nor drunks, not enslaved to much wine. And this should come as no surprise to us because a Christian woman, under the influence of sound biblical doctrine, is enslaved to nothing. She's enslaved to nothing. She's enslaved to no one in all the Heavenly Father's creation. She is a daughter of the great King. She's free in a way and free to a degree that unbelievers can't even begin to imagine. She is free from the guilt of sin, free from the addictions of sin, free from the power of sin, free from the pollution of sin, free from a sinful past, free to walk free in the present, free to smile at the future. At last, God has shown her the truth in the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the truth has made her free. And the one yoke under which she serves is that of him who loved her to the uttermost, him who gave himself up to the cross for her, who lives everlastingly to love her and cherish her and do her good. Freed from the guilt of sin, she's at liberty to teach goodness. Teaching what is good translates a single Greek compound word that combines the thought of teaching with the word 
kalos, that means in various contexts, good, right, proper, fitting, honorable, honest, fine, beautiful, and precious. That one Greek word, kalos. We get our word calligraphy from it, beautiful writing. She teaches things that are beautiful. We have probably all sat at one time under the teaching of someone who had an axe to grind. For whatever reason, there was a painful, bitter, self-defensive slant to what was presented. And it didn't come across as altogether fair and balanced, even, much less loving. And how sad it is when that approach comes from the church's pulpits, as well as the state's classrooms. But the Christian woman, who by the cross has been liberated from all unnatural and long-cultivated bitterness, she's finally in a position to produce good fruit. The word of God prunes her, lops off whatever was dead and clinging to her, and like a well-tended vine, she's clean. She's ready to produce. The water that Christ gives her becomes within her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And just as we read in Proverbs 31, so we read here, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She can smile at the future. And if mom can smile at the future, all the daughters who learn her ways can smile too. So what do the moms teach the daughters? What do the older women in the church teach their young apprentices? What are their educational objectives? when they teach. They train the younger women, first of all, to be husband-loving. Verse 4. And let's not skip over this too quickly. It looks obvious, but actually it's an amazing thing in at least two respects. First, it demonstrates that love is something not just to be felt, not just to be enjoyed for the moment. It's something to be trained for a lifetime. It's a matter of self-discipline for a young wife to love her husband through time. Just as surely it's self-discipline that keeps a young husband loving his wife through time. Now, of course, there is this wonderful rush, isn't there, to the springtime of young love. But rush in springtime can lead to Russian winters eventually if we don't learn early on how to tend the domestic garden. Jesus loved us to the end, to the uttermost. And godly wives and husbands learn to love one another in just the same way, all the way to the end. The second reason this husband loving is amazing is that it demolishes the ill-informed theological dogma that a wife's sole duty in the home is to submit to her husband. Submission to your own husband is every Christian wife's duty. There it is in verse 5. But that's not your whole duty. Dear sister in the Lord, you see to it that you love him, that you do him good, and if you don't love him this very moment, you sit yourself down 
and ask yourself some hard questions. Or get some older Christian woman to ask you these questions. And don't give yourself rest until you settle the matter and you love him again. Fix it. Fix it now. Fix it before the sun goes down, before the devil gets a foothold in your home. Because it's your love for him that makes your submission to him a joy. Everything in a Christian marriage is designed for reciprocity, for balance. And the joy that comes of a reciprocating marriage is the power that gets you all the way down the road to the finish line. And let the older train the younger in this too, because here's where the trouble often begins. Loving children. Not that loving children is hard. It's not. It's easy. It's wonderful. Loving children is natural and easy as can be, for dads no less than moms. The problem isn't usually with loving children per se. The problem often is with loving husband and children in that order. You've heard the saying that the best thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. And it's exactly true. But we don't ever seem to hear the other side. That the best thing a mother can do for her children is to love their father. The day a wife lets her children usurp her husband's rightful place in her heart is the day that that family begins to spin out of balance. Out of control. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to your daughters. Train them to love their husbands and then also to love their children. In that order. Teach them to be sensible. And it means what it sounds like it means and it's the common goal of old men, old women, young women, young men. There it is, sensibility. Teach them to be sensible in every group's list of virtues. If you want a vivid picture of what happens when our young people grow up not sensible, open up your Bible to any page of the Proverbs and read the way and the final outcome of the fool. Read it and weep that any of Christ's little ones should follow for so much as an hour that broad way so heavy with traffic that leads to death. Teach your daughters to be sensible. Teach them to be pure or chaste. How easy it is for women and men alike to grow jaded, cynical with age. We develop a thick skin impervious to the moral outrages going on around us every day. They begin to look almost normal. And those outrages creep into our own thinking, our own practices as we grow old and careless. We lose the simplicity, we lose the wonder of holiness. But dear friends, we can't teach the things we've forgotten. We can't teach the things we've left behind or think that we've outgrown along life's way. The purity of devotion to Christ alone, unadulterated by the cares and diversions of this world. Dutiful to the home, 
Teach it to your daughters. And if you want happy daughters, teach it to your sons as well. Your daughters will value their work in the home and devotion to it if it happens also to be the center of their husband's universe. Let young wives and mothers be workers at home, young husbands and fathers for the home, workers for the home. If their careers for husband or wife or both, let them be as it were the outer concentric circles whose vital center is the home where the Spirit of Christ lives. Teach them to be kind and subject to their own husbands. There's a sweet heavenly meekness that comes of imbibing the Holy Spirit and so becoming through grace and through time a woman of excellence. He quenches the woman's tongue that once was set on fire by hell. And having experienced the kindness of God, the tongue begins from that day forward to teach kindness. It begins from that day forward to bring healing to those it once deliberately cut down. The Holy Spirit plants in the redeemed woman's heart for the very first time a resolve to obey Christ and bring order to all the relationships of life, beginning with the relationships closest to her. Dear sisters, I recognize that everything I've said today is going to take some very hard work on your part. Because it's all about our sanctification our growth in grace. Are you up for it? Well, of course, not by yourself, you're not. But does the Holy Spirit live and reign within you? Then you are up for it. You are equipped He makes us ready, willing, and able. Commit your way to him and your ways will be established. One final thing. Let's put to rest the idea, quietly insinuated in some quarters of the church, that because women live within certain biblically circumscribed parameters of Christian duty, with special obligations and restrictions upon them, let's put to rest the idea that they are, on that account, second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. Some men may think so, but some men are wrong. And whose opinion matters, really? What do you suppose... Christ thinks of the women for whom he shed his infinitely precious blood. What do you suppose he thinks of the women to whom alone he first showed himself risen from the dead? What does he think of the women, young and old, whose hearts and homes he strictly charged faithful husbands and fathers to defend. What does he think of the women of every generation to whom he gives the precious gift of mothers and motherhood and mentors in older women?
What do you suppose he thinks of that godly femininity on the pattern of which he's designed his church? A bride, saved and washed clean and radiant without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I don't think he made you second-class people. I think he's put you at the very center of the picture. I think he's made you in Christ Jesus the very image of what the church should be. I think let's sit up and take notice and hear what the Spirit is saying to women. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I've preached long, and I thank you that there is so much to say, that you have spoken, and what does the Lord require of us ultimately? But to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. We ask, O oh Lord, that the things that we have learned or been reminded of us of today would remain with us, and that you would bless and keep the souls of your daughters and their homes and the churches of which they form such an important part. Bless your church, your bride and the women and men who compose it. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join together now in praising God with the singing of Psalm 128, Selection B. 128, Selection B. Let's rise and sing. <laughs> 